0: the Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson, sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Welcome, listeners, to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm here with Andrew Ginter, Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who will introduce the subject and guest of today's show. Andrew, how are you today? I'm well, thank you, Nate. Um, always a pleasure to join you. Uh,
1: our guest today is Jonathan Palais, the president and CEO of Red Tiger Security. I caught Jonathan at the S4 show in Miami. S4 is one of the shows uh, that's in the running to be the biggest ICS security focused show in the world. Um, a lot of security gurus like Jonathan come together there, and I caught Jonathan in a, a large and reasonably quiet but a little bit echoey hallway. You might be able to hear some of the echo in the recording. Jonathan is talking to us today about uh, industrial control system penetration testing. Let's hear what he has to say. Jonathan, how you doing? Doing great, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's our pleasure. So Jonathan, um, you folks do a lot of penetration testing. Uh, can you talk about, you know, how
2: does one of those engagements start? Where do you start? What are your ground rules? What's your goal? Yes, thanks. Uh, So the the premise is that you don't really know if your security defenses are adequate or working properly unless you test them properly. And um, it's kind of like, how do you know if your safe works unless you hire someone to crack the safe, right? And so uh, a lot of our customers in the industrial sector uh, have outsourced portions of their security management systems to third parties. Uh, sometimes there's, there's fragmentations in the organization, so um, they're not sure what is the weakest gap or weakest link uh, for an adversary to, to uh, gain access to their crown jewels, which in this case would be their control system. So normally what happens when we discuss this with a customer is we'll discuss kind of like a Chinese menu of different options, right? So we'll say, uh, would you like us to pen test from the Internet into your business system? Uh, and then uh, we'll do that for a couple weeks. And then would you like for us to start with our presence on your corporate network uh, with the goal in mind to find all of the connected paths down into the control system? Um, also, would you like for us to try war dialing? Maybe there are some modems that have been left connected. Uh, also, would you like us to try phishing? We know a lot of the recent attacks, uh, ransomware and RAT and all, all the other um, back doors uh, have been coming through fishing. So let's test your employees' ability to detect the fish and see if we can get in this way. Uh, another uh, option that we'll offer is uh, physical uh, penetration testing, whereby we're going to disguise ourselves as either a corporate worker and go into their, one of their corporate buildings and plug ourselves into their, uh, a network jack and then proceed from there, or uh, disguise ourselves as a plant worker and uh, literally talk our way or walk our way into their industrial facility. And then once we're in there, their plant grounds, uh, maneuver through those various buildings uh, into a building that has either like a marshaling cabin with IO and controllers or uh, the actual control room itself.
0: Now, Andrew, penetration testing, at least for me, seems like one of the more uh, interesting aspects of uh, cybersecurity. Uh, do you feel the same way?
1: Oh, yeah. I'm everybody everybody understands attacks everybody loves to uh to understand how these things work it's it's a it's a fascinating field
0: yeah and Jonathan's description of of what he did includes a, a lot
1: it is it 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 can be very confusing there's a lot of different starting points there's a lot of different targets there's a lot of different paths um so you know I asked Jonathan can we start at the top so you know let's listen in L- let's take one example that that struck me um starting on the internet black box test come in is that not really testing the strength of the IT
2: systems you know i thought you guys were doing ics yes okay so even our our own customers don't aren't really aware of uh, what are the weakest links or weakest gaps into their ics systems and some of our customers actually have some of their ICS systems that are internet-facing or using a third party of cellular modems and whatnot that have internet-routable IP addresses directly on their controllers. So they're, sometimes they're not even aware of the connectivity of their ICS system outbound or the potential for inbound from the internet. So even though you would consider it to be an IT test, it's an IT pin test though with the goal in mind of finding the presence of of ICS components.
0: Andrew, why are control systems connected to the Internet?
1: We often see uh, Internet-facing control systems. You know, it's it's not considered best practice. It's, uh, you know, sometimes you have no choice if you have, I don't know, and, you know, Electric substations that are very distant, and it's just very hard to lease connectivity private connectivity to these things. You might have to go through a public network, but generally, people try to avoid this. Um, in spite of that, though, you know, as Jonathan points out, there are often connections, often connections that uh, you know, industrial sites don't really know that they have, or maybe, you know, one or two people on the site know and the rest kind of don't, and it really hasn't percolated into the the security program. You know, systems integrators who are responsible for uh, managing certain equipment, they have a contract to manage certain equipment, might set up these access mechanisms so they can do their job remotely without really telling anybody. The, you know, people at the site might request remote access or remote monitoring capabilities uh, for their own, you know, purposes of efficiency and, you know, years go by, they don't use these things anymore, they forget they exist or, again, that knowledge hasn't percolated through the organization, it wasn't taken into account when the security program was designed, Um, you know, equipment vendors might set up these connections so that they can, you know, dial into over the phone system, dial into... uh, you know connections to their equipment and see how it's going because they have support obligations they have warranty obligations there's a lot of different reasons you might have these direct connections again in the modern world they're considered not best practice but uh it would be important for uh organizations to be reminded of to discover that they are exposed this way this is what jonathan's talking about his job is to go in there and uh you know, expose the, uh, the, uh, the kind of security risks that uh, he discovers that the organization's, organizations undertaken and may not have, have taken into account in their overall security program.
0: Right. For all the reasons you might do it, I just keep thinking that if I were an attacker, this is sort of free real estate, a free attack vector uh, that you could enter through the internet and have full control over whatever systems you're looking at.
1: So that's very much right. If we've got these connections from control systems to the internet or to the public switch telephone system, it's absolutely true that we've got exposure there. The bad guys can get in and, and do nasty stuff. But to me, it's also a question of, you know, there, there's a lot of debate in the industry over, um, is it safe to run a penetration test on a live system? Well, here we've got live systems connected to the internet. Jonathan's coming in, uh from the internet into these live systems, is this not uh, a reliability concern? Is it not a, a, a safety concern? You know, there there can be consequences when you come into these systems. So I asked him about that, and and you know he gave me a good answer. If the if the goal is to get into the ICS system, can you be more specific? I mean, I'm guessing the goal is not to turn the lights out
2: or you know cause equipment damage. Where do you stop? How do you know when you're, how do you know when you're done? Uh, excellent question, Andrew. Uh, so we have a gated approach to where uh, the, the first uh, portion of the project is to gain presence from the Internet onto the IT network, somewhere in the business network. Uh, we'll, and we'll do that for about two weeks. Uh, whether or not we are successful, at the end of two weeks, uh, we will stop, pause, and explain how far we got, what we discovered. And we do not actually launch uh, and and exploit any vulnerabilities we find without consent from our customers. Uh, Now, with uh, the recent project we did for an oil and gas customer, the specific goal was to shut down one of their wells. They had 3,000 wells. Uh, This was out in uh, West Texas and Oklahoma. And they gave us a specific well, an IP address and controller, And uh, this well was uh, shut in, but the controller was still live. And they wanted to see if we could actually send this shutdown command to that controller. Um, Now, it it was not just, uh, hey, guys, here's the the project and go wild, wild west on our system. It was a series of breakpoints. So, you know, stop here, see where we're at, and then continue from the corporate network, get onto the DMZ, stop, and then go from there.
0: What Jonathan just said makes sense to me. You asked the customer where to go and where to stop. Um, Is there any standard for what Jonathan does in the wider industry for sort of what's off limits and what's on? Uh, No, there isn't, in fact.
1: And uh, this is a a topic of perennial debate. Is it safe to do pen tests on live systems? So it's um, Jonathan's answer is very interesting. You know, this is the first time I've had it explained to me. Yeah, um, he does tests on live systems this is how they do it um, you know this is this was news to me I mean, it's, it's very interesting so I asked him you know so when you do this what are you finding
2: can you talk about findings what what are you finding how you know what's what's the state of the practice out there Yes, uh, excellent question, Andrew. And uh, as you might assume that uh, things are are still pretty bleak out there, even though we've been doing this for like 15 years, we're still finding uh, that it is fairly uh, easy, given time and motive and attention and, and skill set, to find controllers, uh, find the, the right protocols, send the packets into those controllers, and essentially cause a well to shut down. And the most recent example for a project we worked on uh, we started by listening, just detection, just capturing PCAPs. Okay? And by analyzing those PCAPs, we found a lot of calls through port 502 to various controllers once we got onto the, the, uh, the side of the business that had this SCADA system implemented. And without any uh, interaction with our, our customer SCADA team, we were able to determine just based on listening, uh, where the controllers were, what make and model were those controllers. And we also found a specific uh, register inside the controller uh, that we perceived was uh, the right one for shutting in the well. And uh, we were able to verify that by uh, downloading the PLC program from the PLC and analyzing in a workbench software and when you spot on by reading the ladder logic exactly what uh, coil and what register it took to do it. And so uh, I think once you have presence on a network that has SCADA traffic because it's non-encrypted. It's open. The ports are well-known. The commands are well-known. If you have a good SCADA background combined with a good team, a good pen test team, those two skill sets can be very effective to, to, to pull off the, uh, the, the the desired goal.
1: So Nate, that was a, a very technical uh, answer that, that Jonathan gave. Uh, it, you know, it made perfect sense to people who are already familiar with uh, um, how these these systems work. Let me give just a, a couple of words of background uh, for for you know IT listeners or other listeners who might not uh, be familiar with all this. Port five hundred two TCP port five hundred two is the standard listen port for the Modbus protocol. Modbus is an open protocol. Uh, it's it's well documented. Uh, it's not encrypted, and so if you're sniffing the uh, the, the network traffic, uh, you can learn a lot about. Uh, the communication just by looking at the, uh, the the messages. The the protocol uses terms like coils. That's a very old term. The modern term is is registers. Basically, a a programmable logic controller, a PLC, uh, is the device that is physically electrically connected to uh, the the physical process. So, uh, in you know, he gave the example of a, a an oil well. There's an electric engine typically on the oil well that is uh, driving the pump jack and it's pulling oil out of the ground. There might be, I mean, a typical PLC has as many as, I don't know, two, three hundred things that it's monitoring, temperatures, pressures, flows. There might be fewer than that on an oil well, An oil well is a fairly uh, uh, simple device. But a PLC could have as many as 50 or 100 outputs as well. Turn this on, turn that off, do more of this, do more of that. And each of those inputs and outputs is called a register or a a coil in the Modbus terminology. And the Modbus communication protocol lets anybody who's connected to the device on a Modbus uh, connection send requests to the device saying, give me uh, the value of these registers. Um, how much oil is coming out? What's the quality? You know, is the engine running? Is the engine stopped? Um, and can write values to these registers as well. There's read commands and there's write commands. And, you know, the way these these things work, uh, and oil wells moving up and down, um, frequently it's not possible to pull oil continuously out of the ground. The oil underground is not flowing fast enough you uh, have a small sort of reservoir nearby to the oil well where you can pull stuff out, and then the oil stops coming. And if you're still sucking, you know, the, the engine's moving, you're sucking on this, you get vacuum cavities in the oil, you start getting uh, serious vibrations. The PLC is monitoring for this stuff and would send a command to the engine to shut down wait for a while to let oil flow back into the the cavity underground that is is easily pumped and then start up again and an attacker who's discovered you know that they can open a tcp uh connection to port 502 can send modbus commands to turn on or turn off the engine once they know which register is the one or the zero running you know determining whether there's electric power the switch that's going to the engine so this is what Mon- what Jonathan was describing as his his goal is uh you know send the right command the right number usually a zero into the the register that controls the switch that turns off the uh, the engine to the pump this was his goal and he's saying yeah they looked around and once they're in the network it's certainly possible to do this they look at the traffic and they figure this stuff out it is fairly technical um and he talked about uh verifying what they saw in the the network traffic by reverse engineering um, the the programmable logic controller code and i asked him about this because that's not easy to do you know he's talking about a lot of knowledge here I thought it would be a, a lot of work for me to try and reverse engineer a, a, a
2: PLC ladder logic, but you, you did this in the past. You, you were Mr. PLC in the past, were you not? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. In, in, in the 1990s, I worked for Chevron and programmed a, a number of types of PLCs and then went from that, that type of a role as a facility engineer into a cybersecurity person. So I think if you, if you may not find that in the same person, but if you can put together a team of the right people, you can also be effective in doing. This and uh, the and what, what's interesting comes out of these projects is that usually at the beginning of the project, the operations team and the IT team are very skeptical that we can actually do this. Um, along the way, as we are presenting the findings to the customer, we can see all of their eyes open, we can see them all like have that come to Jesus moment. And in fact, uh, we had uh, several operation supervisors actually go to that specific well, power it up, see it move up and down as it had a pump-off controller, and watched as we sent the command to shut in the well. Once they watched that, they asked us, can you shut in all 3,000 wells? And I said, absolutely, with a simple script, with NETCAT, and with these simple commands, within a matter of probably 10 minutes, your entire production will be shut down. And I think that's really what makes me feel so passionate about what I've been doing these past 15 years in this industry is that what we do actually changes people's perspective. It gets management behind fixing the problem. And when we walk away from a project, there's a sense of satisfaction that we actually did something to help further our customer along the path of strengthening their security.
0: So when when Jonathan talks about everything that his his he and his team were able to accomplish uh my first instinct is to panic and be very worried and then my next thought is that i i've never really met a red team uh a penetration a penetration testing team that didn't find everything that they wanted to find uh maybe they exist out there and we just don't hear about them Um, but it seems like every time we look we find more and more vulnerabilities uh do you agree andrew this is true to an extent um you know it's a it's a truism that given
1: enough time money and talent anything can be hacked and uh, the the question is not are we secure the question is uh, how secure are we and really the more important question is how secure should we be how high should the bar be and so the, the the question is not can someone get in the answer is always yes the question is how difficult is that and you know what jonathan's pointing out here is that frequently it's not that difficult this is the uh the alarming part and the good news is that people uh you know understand the results and they say oh that was not hard at all uh you know we need to fix this it was not hard at all for someone skilled in the art and this is some a, a point i did want to make you know jonathan's talking about a lot of technical knowledge that he had he wrote these plc programs in the past so of course you know he's got the skills to to uh disassemble them and and understand what they do. Um, Those skills are, you know, in somewhat short supply. Jonathan teaches a course on this stuff. He has for years. He's a guru in this space. So it's a a bit misleading that, you know, the fact that he got in means anybody could get in. It doesn't mean anybody could get in, but it does mean that someone skilled in the art could get in. And, you know, the people who run these these, uh, industrial systems, it's their job to decide how high should the bar be set. And, you know, the good news here is that Jonathan's saying... Generally speaking, when, uh, you know, his team finds a way in and explains how that worked, it opens eyes and people are saying, you know, the bar's not set high enough. We need to set the bar higher. Does that answer your question?
0: It does. I do have a follow-up question, though, which is that um, do we know if in what Jonathan does, you can account for exactly where skill meets results? Like, could Jonathan come back to a client and say, um I managed to get in, but I don't think anybody under a certain level of knowledge or skill could. Like, you should be worried about these people, but not these people?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I didn't ask him that question. Um, you know, Fair enough. But So we're, we're, we need a follow-up with him. Um, he's, he's actually expressed interest in, in other topics, so I, I hope to, to, to catch him on, on one of these uh, shows again on, on related topics. I did ask him about um, the physical security aspects he talked about um a lot of different things um you know different techniques that he uses to get in he mentioned physical so that that was my next question to him okay let's get to that a little earlier you were talking about physical physical stuff now my understanding is that your your specialty is cyber how do you is there a connection between the
2: physical work and the cyber work you're doing and and how do you make that connection Yes. Uh, so what we find, and it's still uh, present today, is a lot of times the physical security deployments, and such as cameras, the right doors to lock, uh, the cabinets to lock, is done by a team that doesn't really understand the cyber risk and doesn't really understand how the control system works. So for example, when we, we are asked to uh, physically go into a plant and try to cause an issue uh, with that plant, uh, we find that They might have cameras on the main entry point of the plant. The main building might have cameras. And because the physical security teams are looking at a different type of threat vector, you know, the general purpose person wandering into a plant that shouldn't be there, or safety issues, this person shouldn't be in this part of the plant. But they're not thinking about a targeted attack where someone is actually looking for their I.O. cabinets, their PLC cabinets, and those are oftentimes unlocked and unsurveilled which means if we can get our physical team in the plant, once they're walking around the plant with a plant outfit, you know, the the Nomex uh, uh, equipment and a hard hat, we look like everybody else in the plant. We look like we belong there. But we know the right door to open, we know what we're looking for, and a lot of those industrial switches don't have uh, port protection. They're not managed switches. If you think about a lot of the Hirschman stuff out there and a lot of the industrial switches, uh, if you just find an open port or disconnect like a a touchscreen interface and plug your computer into that same port, uh, you're going to have free reign on the entire DCS or ICS system because they're all flat at that level.
1: So, I mean, it's, it's a truism, but what you're proving here is that, that uh, uh,
2: physical security is essential to cybersecurity. Absolutely. And physical security uh, needs to be deployed in such a way that effectively prevents the specific threats to ICS systems, which is different than threats to a cybersecurity system on the IT side. So, Nate, that was uh, another lot of, of uh, technical terminology
1: Jonathan's using um, You know, a lot of the the IT listeners might well be familiar with things like network access control and, uh, you know, flat networks versus structured. Uh, Let let me give a few words of explanation maybe for our our control system listeners. Um, He's uh, he's talking about, uh, you know, Physically walking up to, to systems and plugging into them, the uh, you know the the Hirschman switches he he mentioned the industrial switches tend to be environmentally hardened so that it's safe to deploy them in explosive environments or in, in environments where the temperature or humidity vary much more widely than than is uh, is uh, going to be the case in an IT uh, sort of air conditioned environment. But these switches are often designed, you know the to address physical risks, the risk of an explosion, not to design, to, to uh, you know withstand uh, uh, security attacks, physical security attacks. So you know he's talked about um, the switches uh, not having port protection. You can configure some of the the IT switches, the managed switches, to say uh, these ports are enabled, those ports are disabled. It doesn't matter if you plug something into a disabled port. Nothing happens. You can configure the ports to say, uh, if you plug something into the port, it has to have one of these three MAC addresses. Otherwise, I'm not going to let it do anything. And so with those sort of advanced IT switches, if you've got the the network access control feature turned on, even if you walk up physically to the switch and plug into it with your, your attack laptop, nothing happens. But that's not the case with a lot of the, the switches Jonathan says that uh, that he's running into. And when he says, you know, once you're into the switch, it's a flat network, he's meaning there's not a lot of firewalls between you and your target. You're on the switch, you can see the entire control system network. This is a very common design for older control systems. They just didn't think about firewalls. It's, you know, it's even... Uh, uh, people are reluctant to put firewalls deep into their, their control networks, even in brand new systems uh, because it's difficult to get the vendor to characterize the required connectivity, what messages need to be allowed. And so people are just, you know, they're often reluctant to put firewalls deep into their control network, meaning once you get connected to that network, you can see everything. There's nothing in your way. You can connect to any device on the network. And, you know, this is the, the, the advantage of physically walking in and plugging into this stuff.
0: Right. And isn't it a, a truism that uh, that if you can get there, if you can touch it, that it's yours?
1: That's absolutely true, Nathan. The 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 real question, though, is how much skill do you need? I mean, if you're dealing with an encrypted hard disk, if you're dealing with an encrypted iPhone, you know, this was in the news a year ago, the, the FBI wanted Apple to help hack into iPhones, you may need quite a lot of effort still, even though you're touching it. What Jonathan's pointing out is that that's generally not the case with industrial control systems. Once you're in, you can see everything, you can touch everything.
0: Okay, uh, let's get back to your interview with Jonathan.
1: Can you give me an example? Um, You know, uh, you talk about IO
2: cabinets, you talk about, you know, impersonating plant people. Um, You know, tell me a story. Okay, so uh, one of our recent projects, we discovered that their uh, control room environment Uh, was in a corporate building on a certain floor of their corporate building. Uh, By walking around uh, the office, we were able to gain some intel. Uh, Combined with calling into the the various numbers that we obtained through LinkedIn, uh, we were able to find out the exact room number in their building where the control room and the control room equipment was located. And by doing enough uh, poking around, we were able to determine that uh, there was an adjacent room to the, the control room that was uh, used as a fax print uh, little room that people would put supplies in in boxes. So in, uh, in order to get access to the equipment that we wanted to, what we did was we, we essentially took photographs of their badges they were RFID badges, but so we didn't clone the RFID badge. We just simply just took photos of it. We went to Office Max, and within a half hour, we just created our own badge with an inkjet printer that looked like their badge. We went to a pizza place that was nearby, ordered four big boxes of pizzas and a big uh, carrying case of drinks. And I, saw so I had the badge clipped onto my belt. I looked just like one of their workers with a button-down shirt, docker pants, I, had, I was holding all the pizzas and the cups. I walked in through the, the front door, and the guard leaned over and was like, hey, I want. Uh, can, did you register with the lobby? And then I just leaned over and showed him my badge. He said, check, got you. Uh, walked directly to the elevator shaft. And people were helpful to press the right button to gain access to that floor. Once I was on that floor, I was walking around with the pizzas and the drinks. I walked directly to that room where they were storing things. And, and the whole time I was wearing uh, glasses that had an HD camera in the middle of it. So it looked like normal glasses, but it captured everything from start to finish that we were able to use in our presentation to their, to their management team. Um, so once I was in that room, I closed the door, I, start, I noticed the ceiling had a false ceiling and I started pressing around in the ceiling and it was I was actually able to crawl up into the ceiling and over into a room that had server equipment. It wasn't the big control room, you know, obviously the, the operators are there 24 hours. They would see some strange man climbing, you know, over the roof. But uh, I was able to crawl through the roof and into the server room and, and I was able to plug into their their SCADA switches uh, just by... Uh, It actually cost me $45 for the pizzas and the drinks, and it cost me about $21 for the badge materials and, uh, you know, uh, some paper to print the the badges on. So basically less than $100 uh, of just basic stuff you can pick up at the store. We were able to get ourselves physically in the room that had their most sensitive equipment.
0: This guy's the real lifetime cruise.
1: Absolutely. You know, he's, uh, he's been doing this for a long time. I, I've, I've read some of his articles where he talks about breaking into a power plant. It's, uh, it's fascinating stuff.
0: Let's get back to Jonathan to see how, uh, how this movie ends. You uh,
1: discover these, these attack vectors. You uh, prove they're exploitable. Uh, you take your report to the people who, who engaged you or to their management um, what do they do with this? Do they put a, a barrier in the
2: ceiling and say there we're done, or do they do they do more than that? Well, we we obviously uh, present the attack vectors that we used, but uh, when you're doing a pen test, you have to remember that the pen tester only has to find one path in, and oftentimes. Uh, there are many, many vulnerabilities and access points, uh, so we always discuss this with our customer, is that this is not a game where you find a hole, then you patch it, like you know, you're patching a hole in a wall, another leak, uh, and then you patch that leak. Uh, I think the purpose of a pen test is really to change the mindset of an organization, to let them understand that they have an issue. And if we can do that, then we 've effectively, effectively have done our job uh, to, in order to, to really uh, change an organization, uh, you need to have an effective ICS program, and that 's a more strategic uh, project. And we were able to do that with uh, Inbridge and many other co- companies where we actually started with a pen test. And then we found that the, the root of the problem was deeper. It had to do with governance, having to not, having, not having the right roles and people in place. And actually it ended up being a whole year-long project that was a strategic project to actually fix it at, at the root cause. And so uh, it is much more than just patching a hole here and patching a hole there. It's interesting to me that the, what Jonathan said
0: he does is change the mindset of companies because, um, at least in my view, I, I frankly I think that a company that is looking for and hiring a, a pen test team is already sort of on the right track. And what Jonathan seems to be doing is more opening their eyes to what they otherwise can't see.
1: That's right. I mean, the the uh, the classic thinking is that a penetration test is a terrible risk assessment it's not the tool you use for for a risk assessment the purpose of a pen test as jonathan said is you know i'll paraphrase it as it's shock and awe it's to shake the money loose it's to persuade people that they have a problem but then you know the the result is not put a band-aid over the one or two attack paths that resulted in penetration it is uh, you know change the thinking and shake the money loose for uh, a thorough uh you know, revisit of the uh, the the security program to raise the bar across the board to the point where the business needs it to be.
0: Right? Can I ask why it's seen as a poor means of uh, risk assessment?
1: Yeah, um, it's risk assessment is is talking about all risks. A risk assessment has to be comprehensive. And a penetration test typically finds one or two paths into the system and said, hey, uh, you're not as secure as you thought you were. So uh, a a penetration test shows you that your security program is flawed. And uh, it shows you, uh, you know, one or two weaknesses. Uh, It does not show you all of the weaknesses when we Remediate when we fix a security program, we need to be comprehensive. We need to fix all of the problems. But you know, as as you've seen, pen tests are fascinating. Uh, you know, people understand attacks. Uh, pen tests uh, help persuade people that something needs to be done. But the something is not a band aid. The something is uh, take a systematic approach to fixing
0: the problem. All right. Let's get back to Jonathan's final answers. Is
2: there a lesson that you'd like to leave with our audience? What's What's the takeaway here? Well, uh, number one, you never know what's underneath the rocks unless you look, and I think it's it's really important that you take a a, a look at your infrastructure security from a multifaceted view, uh, not just a pen test, not just a fish. You know, you need to have a, a test all the potential attack vectors. And you will find. Sometimes you will find an attack vector that you're not aware of yourself. And by having a third party do it, it's much better as well because you have a different set of eyes. And uh, in almost every case, we find that uh, the core issues are deeper than a technical issue. It's deeper than not having the right firewall rule. It's deeper than just not having the right door locked. Um, It's all over the past three to five years. I've seen each one of our projects lead to a a strategic change in the organization and uh, enhancement or build out of of an actual ICS program, Uh, whereas before they were thinking they could just take their SCADA programmers and SCADA administrators and have them do cybersecurity on top of their job or have their IT team just go look after these other SCADA assets on top of what they're doing on the IT side. You really cannot effectively uh, build a a good cybersecurity uh, program with the uh, people that are already doing their day-to-day jobs. You need to have a specific group of people that uh, that are doing just ICS security for the company. And those companies that have spent the time to build out their ICS security program properly are winning the game. And we see that when it comes to these uh, ransomware attacks, malware attacks, their ability to detect, defend, and restore their operations quickly points directly to the fact that they did their homework and they built the team properly. So good people and having a good team and a good program uh, tied with good technology and uh, uh, really is what it, you need to, to really uh, have a good proper program.
0: It seems like Jonathan's takeaways there are rather broadly applicable to any industry having a good team, good people and then an infrastructure to support it. Yes, but you know to his point these
1: these uh, these principles often have not been applied in the industrial control system security world. Um, you know the the look at the number of ICS security gurus in the world. My estimate is that there's maybe 1% or 2% as many ICS security gurus as there are IT security gurus. Lots of, you know, there, there's comparatively much better understanding of security in the IT space than there is in the control system space. And a lot of people, you know, a lot of operating these these control systems, um, they... You know, they need to see, they need the, the the shock and awe. Oh, look, someone got in and turned our pumps off. And with 10 more minutes work, they could have turned off all 3,000 pumps. Uh, they need to be prodded to say, this is unacceptable. Um, assign the money, create a team, fix this problem. Um, the, the, uh, the, the pen test, in, in my understanding, is often a... The, the the inflection point between what we have is good enough, why uh, why are we talking about this, to what we have is not good enough. We need to fix this. We need to fix it properly. Uh, let's start
0: taking steps. Great. That seems to be all we have for today. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Pillay for sitting down with you, and thank you, Andrew, for sitting down with me.
1: My pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure, mate.
0: Until next time, this has been the Industrial Security Podcast. I'm Nate Nelson. We'll see you next time.